0: All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 4, and then we'll skip down and read verse number 10. Let's, uh, I'll begin in verse 1, and then we'll read together verses 2, verses 4, and then verses 10. Uh, I'll begin in verse 1. Let's, uh, it says, There thou therefore my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Together, verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Look down at verse number 10 with me. Ready? Here we go. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We're in our series, Love Works, our theme, Love Works. We're looking at this series, The Properties of Love. We've already looked at several properties that make up love today. We're going to look at this title, Love is Chaste. Love is Chaste. Love is Pure. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to understand the sermon this morning. Lord, everyone here uh, is going to need something that's said. Uh, Lord, as I work to put this message together, you put your finger on many things in my life that needs to change. And so, Lord, help all of us to come here with a desire to allow your spirit to rebuke us. And show us where we can have a love that is more pure and more genuine and authentic. And, Lord, our goal is to learn how to love so we can love you and then turn around and love A broken world around us. And so show us, Lord, where we can do better. Show us, Lord, where we're falling short. And help us, Lord, to improve. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So yesterday, Pastor Morales and I drove up and attended a pastor's meeting. And a comment was made in that meeting, and I believe this statement to be mostly true. And I just want to uh, state this at the very beginning here. The statement was made that this younger generation, they do not know how to handle any form of correction. They take it as though it is a personal attack against them. And no matter how you go about doing it, they just don't like it. And they buck and push away. Can I tell you that if uh, someone loves you, they ought to be willing to correct you. If someone loves you and they see a flaw in your life, they ought to be willing to tell you so that you can make it better. Can I ask something this morning? Can we all make it a point to not be offended? Not to feel as though the pastor's coming after us and attacking us. I'm not going to headhunt. I don't have anybody in mind as I preach the sermon today. But listen, I, let's let the, the Spirit of God and the truth of God and the Word of God uh, work in our hearts uh, today. Paul here wrote the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy. He wrote it from prison. And at the conclusion of the writing of the book... Shortly thereafter, he would have his head guillotined, he'd be killed, and become a martyr for the faith. Uh, Paul said in this book, he said, I have foregone a lot of things that most people in life would have, so that I can help other folks. So back at verse 4 with me. It says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You know what he's saying here. There are things in life I have chosen not to have, so that I can please my Savior. There are things in life I have chosen to forego that are not even necessarily sinful, because I want my God to be pleased with how I live my life. Look, look down at verse ten. Therefore, I endure things. All, I endure all things for the elect's sake. What is he saying? Not only have I chosen to forego some niceties of life, I have also chosen to be to suffer and be persecuted for. The betterment of others. I have been willing to suffer so that other people could know the love of God. You know, that takes a pure love to be able to live that way. To be able to say, I love God so much and I love others so much, I'm willing to forego some things and I'm willing to endure some things so that other folks can know the love of God through me. We are on a quest in 2020 to have God fix our affection. My prayer is that as we have looked at the various properties of God's love, that your heart has been challenged just as mine has. God has been making it very clear to me in the study of many things in my heart and life that are broken. There are relationships in my life that are strained. There are a handful of people in my life, uh, if I'm just being honest this morning, I I don't, my flesh does not like them very much, and I don't think they like me very much. How many of you can relate this morning? Hopefully it's not at me, amen? (laughs) God needs to deconstruct our broken love and reconstruct His love. Thus far in this series, we've looked at these topics, love is charitable, love is compassionate. Last week, we looked at love is committed. Today, we're going to focus on this topic, love is chaste, love is pure. The sermon today will apply to every single person in the room, because not a single one of us have a love that is pure. And truth be told, our love won't be totally pure until we get to heaven, and God has completely Removed our broken love and given us his love. Here's what I want to say to you uh, by way of introduction this morning. We're all a conglomeration of our upbringing, our influences, and our life experiences. All of us. Uh, God wants to reach down and fix us, but we're all broken. Whether you come from a home that's traditional, a mom and dad who raised you and loved you, or you come from a home that's broken... We're all broken. Some of us are more broken than others. I don't want to stand up here this morning and throw stones at anybody. That's not the purpose of the message. What I want to do is point us to the goal. The goal is for us to learn to love like our Savior. And whether someone is here and someone else is back here and someone else is up here, it doesn't really matter where you are because none of us are where we ought to be. None of us are where we could be. What I want to do this morning is not throw a stone for where you're at you for where you're standing. I want you to look at where you're standing and identify it. And look at where God wants you to be. And if you can make one change in your life this morning that moves you closer to a love that is pure, and your love is purified just a little bit, then God will have done a work in your life, and your life experiences, your life relationships, and your relationship with Him will be better for it. How many of you here this morning have at least one strained relationship in your life? Will you raise your hand for me? You have at least one strained relationship. Someone in your life you just don't get along with very well. Um, Don't raise your hand for this, but whose fault is it that the relationship is strained? Is it yours or is it theirs? Usually, not in every circumstance, usually it's a little bit of both. God has had to teach me this lesson. I cannot fix someone else's broken love. I cannot do it. But I can allow God to repair and refine my love. As God fixes me, the health of my strained relationships magically begins to improve. More often than not, I am the cause of suffering relationships... I'm just too blind by my own pride to really be able to see it. Can I ask you all a favor this morning? Can you forget about everyone else for just a little while and ask God to show you how your love can be purified? We're going to look at God's Word this morning. We're going to look at two principal thoughts. And then below the second point is where we'll spend most of the message. And we're going to look at... Several thoughts on how God can show us where our love is broken, our love is impure, and it can be purified. If you have a bulletin this morning, you got one on the way in, there's a fill-in-the-blank outline on the back, as there is oftentimes. I'd ask that you try and fill that out as we go and, and take ample notes that you can review later. Point number one of the message this morning is this, the Christian's choice. The Christian's choice. Now, uh, 1 John, we're going through 1 John on, um, uh, Sunday evenings. I don't want to use too much out of 1 John on Sunday morning because I'll steal my own thunder. But, um, uh, we're going to look at 1 John in just a moment. Prior to going to 1 John, if you would turn over to Matthew chapter number 22. Matthew chapter number 22 and look at verse number 37 with me. While you're turning there, letter A is this. Love of the Father. Love of the Father. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 37. And Jesus saith unto him. It's a verse we're all familiar with. Can we read it out loud together? I still hear pages turning. Matthew is in the Old Testament. No, I'm kidding. It's not in the Old Testament. Some of you are like, what? When did it get put there? First book of the New Testament. Matthew 22. That's why all the page turning. I, I, I said two different Y'all need a love on me. Knock it off over there. Matthew chapter 22. All right, look at verse 37. 37. 97. Are you all thoroughly confused this morning? Matthew twenty two thirty All right, here it goes. Read it with me. Jesus saith unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. So the Christian's choice, we can choose to love the Father. Now, we know the second greatest commandment is that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can I say this? Until you learn to love God, you have no chance at loving your neighbor. You have no chance at it. Uh, not the way God wants you to love your neighbor. The reason why many of us have strained relationships is because we really don't love God like we're supposed to. So when we learn to have a pure love for the father by our very nature we will turn around and have a love for our neighbor and even the neighbors that are not easy to love we will love them as well if you struggle with loving your brother it's because you have struggled with loving the father and so choice number one is that we love the father choice number two or letter b is love of the flesh love of the flesh 1 John chapter 2, let me read these verses for you. Uh, it says this in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what is, what is in the world? What is this love or this worldly love we're not supposed to have? Listen how personal this is. Listen here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life... Is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we're commanded that we're not to love the world. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we're not to uh, love the lust of the flesh, what my flesh wants. The lust of the eyes, that's looking at something that uh, doesn't belong to me, or that I'm not supposed to have, and desiring that, and the pride of life. That's... uh, uh, putting myself first ahead of everyone else love of the flesh now here is why all of us struggle with a broken love and, and and the reason why our love is not pure is because we lean on the flesh more than we lean on the father we love the flesh and follow the impulses of the flesh more than we follow the impulses of loving the father if you're here today and you're saved and i hope that's all of you i may not be, but it would uh, most likely be most of you here. You have a war going on inside of you and a tension, a natural tension that's there. You have a, the spirit of God who is cheering for you and prodding you and pushing you to love God. But then you have the, the flesh, that old nature that is pushing you and cheering you and, 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 and yanking you toward loving your flesh and doing what's wrong. And this tension that's there, this natural, The question this morning is, are you living a life that loves the flesh more than the Father or the Father more than the flesh? Someone put it this way, there are two choices on the shelf, loving God or loving self. There are two choices on the shelf, loving God or loving self. You can either choose that which is loving of yourself or you can choose that which is loving of God. You get to make those choices choices every relationship you have that strain and that struggle one of the two of you if not both of you are making a choice to what satisfies your flesh more than what satisfies the father my friend god has called you as a christian to love as he has loved to love him and let him love others through you uh, this evening we're going to look at this out of First John chapter number two. Can I tell you what God wants you to be? He wants you to be a mirror. He shines His love down on you, and it reflects off of you and onto others. His love for us is perfect. Boy, our love isn't always so perfect. Now, with that as the foundation of the message, let's look at point number two. We looked at number one, the Christian's choice. Let's look at number two, the Christian's clothing. Christian's clothing, and I and I mean this in a figurative sense. We're not going to talk about actual clothing, but more in a figurative sense of uh, of our of our love. Uh, Let me read for you Colossians chapter three verse fourteen. It says this. Listen closely. Listen very closely. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Put on charity. So we're to take off. Our version of love, and we 're to put on god 's version of love you all with me this morning we 're to put off the clothing of our broken love of our contaminated love, and we 're to put on the clothing of god 's love This is like a little boy who 's homeless who 's been living on the street wearing the same set of clothes for a long time and they 're ratty and they 're smelly and they're uh, they 're gross and they're, they have holes in them and they 're stained and the shirt that was once white is no longer white. It's more of a, a, a stained uh, uh, color from oils, uh, oils from the skin uh, coming onto it, and uh, kind of like an old ratty t-shirt that you've had for years, but this little boy's been wearing the same shirt for years, and he's taken and uh, uh, into a family and adopted, and he's given new clothes. My friend, you, if you're saved today, you were adopted off of the street of sin. You were put into the palace of God's family, and he is, wants you to wear a new version of love. It's a new type of love. A new clothing. Let's look at the comparison here. Love of the flesh versus love of the Father. Notice letter A. Covetousness versus contentment. Covetousness versus contentment. Love of the flesh is shown by my covetousness. Love of the flesh is is shown by my covetousness. Uh, you're in Second Timothy, we started in Second Timothy 2. Turn over to Second Timothy chapter number three, and look at me, look with me at verse number two. And here Paul is telling Timothy, as we get closer and closer to the coming back of Christ and the rapture, as we get closer and closer to that, boy, men, mankind, they're going to get worse and worse. Look at verse two, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, that next word, Covetousness, or covetous. What is the first identifier of someone who is a lover of their own self? They're covetous. Covetous. Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 says, "...thou shalt not covet." Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen, the Bible says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Boy, what we have really does not matter in the grand scheme of things. The Apostle Paul lumps covetousness in with other heavy-hitting sins. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. He says, but fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. It ought to be that no one ever looks at you as a saint, a child of God, someone who's being in, sanctified. In the sanctification process, someone looks at you and says, boy, he is a covetous person. She is a... A covetous person we ought to steer so far away from that that we avoid that reputation boy I don't know I don't want anybody looking at me and say that Richard guy he's an adulterer he, he's a fornicator I don't want that reputation I work hard to make sure that I'm loyal to my wife and I love my wife and, and as a Christian I steer clear of that entitle. I don't want anybody looking at me and saying that guy lives an unclean lifestyle But Christians, by and large, with the materialistic world we live in, we don't seem to mind saying, Boy, I sure would like to have that. I sure would like to live there. I sure would like to drive that. Ooh, I'm drooling over that car. I'm drooling over that purse. I'm drooling over that house. Wait a minute. Christians are supposed to avoid any idea, any tying to this idea of covetousness. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, listen to this. Paul says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. Idolatry. Covetousness is the worship of things over God. Covetousness is born from an unhealthy reliance on myself to provide for my wants. Covetousness is the belief that other things will make me happy. Covetousness is the belief that your things will make me happy. Covetousness is a choice to love my flesh in place of loving the Father. In contrast... When we choose to love the Father over loving our flesh, instead of choosing a life of covetousness, we choose a life of contentment. Love of the Father is shown in my contentment. Turn over just a couple of pages to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 6. Here we get the equation for great Christian living in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6.6 six, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what's the formula? Godliness plus contentment is Equals great gain. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. What is the standard? It is to be able to have food in our bellies and clothes on our back. Food in our bellies and clothes on our back. Are you content, Christian? Are you content with the bare necessities of life? Can I tell you that in our marriage, in our life, um, God has challenged our contentment. Prior to coming to White Oak Baptist Church, we worked at Emmanuel Baptist Temple in Hagerstown, Maryland. We moved there, and uh, I agreed to be a volunteer assistant pastor. I knew the man who was the pastor, and he's been here to preach. Some of you may remember him. Curtis King is his name. And I, I went and worked for him for free. And I worked as a truck dispatcher, and we moved there with the agreement that a deacon who was a very wealthy man in the church would let us live in one of his homes for free. And so we moved into that home for free, and uh, the home was a very, 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 very simple home, a very plain home. And it was right across the street from a liquor store, and it was not in a good part of town. And we moved in there, and um, uh, I was making... Almost nothing. It was uh, poverty level. Less than $20,000 a year is what I was making as a uh, truck dispatcher. And uh, we were buying our groceries at the cheapest places possible. Uh, We hope we were eating meat, but we don't know what kind of meat it was. Um, uh, We were uh, were shopping at places to get our clothing uh, that were less than desirable. All right? My wife would sometimes wash a new a, a piece of clothing two, three, four times to get the stench out in order for it to be wearable. And I can remember both of us feeling a sense of angst of why did we have to live this life. Eventually, the church did hire me, but I think my pay was like $24,000 a year. And we uh, just had to continue to live there. And I remember my wife and I feeling like, why do we have to live in a home Right across the street from a liquor store where we're seeing drunks go in and out to get their alcohol. And we weren't judging the alcoholics, but you're having people over at your house and they're having to bump into folks walking in there in order to come in and, and just sit there so you can be hospitable with them. It was less than desirable. And I remember the Lord doing a work in my heart and I went home and I told my wife, until we can learn to be content with where we are, we can never expect God to give us anything else. We can clamor for it, we can go get it, but we will not be fulfilling the will of God. Covetousness is the worship of things over God. Contentment is the worship of God over things. Covetousness is born from an unhealthy reliance on myself to provide for my own wants. Contentment is born from a healthy reliance on God to provide for my needs. Covetousness is the belief that other things will make me happy. Contentment is the realization that God is all I need to be joyful. Contentment is the belief that your things that are better than mine will make me happy. Contentment is the belief that the things that God has already given me is enough to make me happy. Covetousness is a choice to love my flesh in place of loving the Father. Contentment is a choice to love the Father instead of loving my flesh. Ben Franklin put it this way, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. If we are to have a love that is pure, if we are to have a love that is honest, if we are to have a love that pleases the Father, then we must face the covetousness in our hearts and in our lives and ask God to take it away. We must confess, we must forsake, we must ask God to take away our garments of covetousness and replace them with a garment Of contentment. Letter A, covetousness versus contentment. Letter B, human acceptance versus heaven's approval. Human acceptance versus heaven's approval. Love of the flesh seeks out human acceptance. This was stated a little while ago in a service on a Sunday evening. I'll say it again here. Let's just be flat out honest with each other. Everyone here, every human I've ever met, every human that's ever lived or will live, we all care about what other people think about us. We do. You can act like you don't. You can pretend like you don't. Everyone finds a crowd that will approve of them and then hangs out without crowd. You ever walked into a room and felt like you were just not very liked in that room? You probably got out of there pretty quick because you don't want to be around people that just don't like you very much. There's a story told about a research project on human behavior uh uh people were put in a room around a conference table and everyone in the room was in on this except the one test subject and he thought everyone was put there at random and uh uh the the uh the scientist came in and said we're we're doing a uh, a project here a a test uh, uh here and we want all of you to participate you've all been chosen at random that wasn't true but everyone uh, uh the t- test subject was the only one unaware of this and they put a coaster For a cup in the center of the table. And that coaster was very clearly a bright engine red. And they asked the person to the right of the test subject, what color is the coaster? And that person stood up and said with great conviction, the coaster is orange. And the test subject thought, what? What? That's not orange. It's obviously red. This man must be colorblind. They went around the table and all 15 people said, The coaster is orange. The coaster is orange. And the man began to think by the third or fourth person, Well, if I look just right, if I get the right shadow. When they came to him, they asked him, Sir, what color is the coaster? He thought for a moment and he stood up and he pointed at the coaster and he said, The coaster is orange. He wanted human acceptance. Why do we want others to accept us? In part because we love ourselves. It is a liberating day when your main focus in life ceases to be the acceptance of others. A black preacher put it this way, he said, be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, then you ain't who you is. Boy, he's right. Let me ask you a question this morning. Let me ask you a series of questions. Does it really matter if you drive a brand new car or an old reliable clunker? Does that really matter? Does it really matter if you buy your clothes from top-end stores or if you get them from Savers or Goodwill? Does it really matter if you buy your groceries at Whole Foods or Aldi's? Does that really matter? Does it really matter if you live in a simple home or you live in a mansion? Now listen, I know contentment plays a role in why people will own a top-of-the-end car, top-of-the-line car, or Wear designer brand clothing and, and shop at Whole Foods and, and live in a mansion. And by the way, let me be very clear, there's nothing wrong with that. If God has provided your family the money where you can do that and live within your budget, by all means, you do that. The problem we run into is when we want these things and we can't afford them. And we're doing it because we want others to accept us. I was talking to a missionary uh, who was a missionary to Africa. And he said, there are people who will drive an expensive car and wear an expensive watch and carry an expensive phone, and when they go home, they live in a one-room shack. Why? Because while they're out and about, they want everyone to think they're wealthy. This isn't just a problem in Africa. This is a problem with humanity. Humanity. It may, not, it may not be portrayed in living in a one-room shack. But we care too much about what other people think. Love of the flesh seeks out human acceptance. When we choose to love the Father, instead we seek out heaven's approval. Turn to John 15 with me. John 15. And look at verse number 19. You say, "Pastor, I I fail to see the correlation between how uh covetousness uh relates to my broken relationships or how uh seeking out human acceptance uh relates to my struggle with my uh, uh my my adult child or with 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 uh with some person in the church or some person that I just butt heads with." Trust me, as you get your love purified, as you learn to choose contentment and you choose to learn to choose Heaven's approval and these other things we'll look at, you'll find that your relationships become better and better and better. Look at John 15 verse 19. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Look, here's just the truth of it, uh, and this isn't something that's going to be preached in a lot of pulpits around America today. In fact, this is not a popular thing for a pastor to say at all, but it is a biblical thing for me to say our love for Christ is to be so fervent that it is a turnoff to non-believers. There ought to be people who just don't like you because you're so in love with Jesus Christ. There ought to be people who look at you and they detest you. They can't stand you. They hate you. Not because of your disposition. Not because you're mean and nasty. Not because you're ugly. Not because you're throwing the Bible at them. But because you're so in love with Jesus Christ, they look at you and say, get out of here. I can't stand you. And you know what? The truth is, the deeper we fall in love with Christ, the less we begin to care about what other people think. Are you seeking out approval of mankind. You say, well, listen, I'm not looking for, you know, the approval of some sinful person. I want to seek out the approval of the church leadership or my godly spouse. Hey, and praise the Lord. If I'm walking with the Lord and you're walking with the Lord, then you ought to approve of my lifestyle and I ought to approve of your lifestyle. But if you're serving God and I don't approve of your lifestyle, if you're walking with him and I don't approve of your lifestyle, then who cares what I think? It's what he thinks. And we ought to seek out heaven's approval. We're too concerned with what others think about us. And that keeps us from being who we ought to be. To the people pleasers in the room, that's good that you want to keep the peace. But don't keep the peace at the expense of hurting the Lord. Letter A, covetousness versus contentment. Let her be acceptance, human acceptance versus heaven's approval. Let her see leisure versus uh, labor. Leisure versus labor. Love of the flesh seeks out personal leisure. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 13 says this, Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes, and thou shalt... Be satisfied with bread. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 4. Again, Paul is giving a list of... Of, of human behavior uh, at the end when people have just come to pots and humanity is coming uh, unglued at the seams and uh, the world is falling apart and there's chaos and and, and people are just very uh, self-centered. Look at verse 4. traders, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. This much I know. My flesh is Lazy. And so is yours. My flesh would rather watch TV than read the Bible. My flesh would rather hang out with friends than spend time in prayer. My flesh would rather stay home than go to church. How many of you fought and won that battle this morning? All of us, amen? My flesh would rather obsess over sports than obsess over the souls of men. My flesh would rather go out fishing or on a boat ride than pick up the phone and encourage someone who is discouraged. Why? My flesh is lazy. My flesh is selfish. My flesh enjoys entertainment. My flesh likes to eat and drink unhealthy things. My flesh enjoys things that are fun. Hey, have you ever noticed in life that the things that are uh, good for you, that they just don't taste very good? My mom would tell me, eat more broccoli. And I'd say, yeah. My kids come to us and they say, Mom and Dad, can we have some candy? My wife says, that's not healthy. But it's good. <laughs> mom and Dad, can we? You, you, My parents in the room with kids at home, you've been asked this a million times. Can we watch TV? Can we watch TV? And I tell my kids, TV is is like candy for the brain. It rots out your brain. Things that are good for us are usually not very fun. Leisure, on the other hand, um, those who love leisure are those who put leisure first and, and they end up living a if-it-feels-good-do-it lifestyle. If-it-feels-good-do-it lifestyle. Why is uh, living together now the new norm? Because who wants to commit to a long-term marriage when we can just enjoy what God intended for the bonds of marriage? My friend, Hebrews 13, I believe it's Hebrews 13, 4, still says, Marriage is honorable and all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. It may be popular in the culture to live together before you get married. It's not popular in heaven. Leisure. If it feels good, do it. These are people who become enslaved by their fleshly impulses. I struggle at times with this. I would rather binge watch YouTube for hours at times and read my Bible. Just a bunch of nothingness. Leisure versus labor. The alcoholic is addicted to leisure. The party animal is addicted to leisure. The couch potato is addicted to leisure. The one who sleeps in every day is addicted to leisure. Loving leisure is worshipping the flesh. Notice in contrast, loving the Father is loving labor. Loving labor. God created Adam and even put them in the Garden of Eden and told them to get to work. Now God created the man to work, but He created the woman to work too. Now, he created the man to be the provider for the home. But that doesn't mean the wife gets to sit at home all day and do nothing all day long. Right? And we live in a day and age where women, for the most part, go to work and help their husband pay the bills. And the purpose of this message is not to touch that subject. I have no problem with women in the workplace. As long as you fulfill your biblical obligation of taking care of your husband and your children first, go to work all you want. But God has called us to labor. And whether that labor is loving your family, whether that labor is going to work and bringing home a paycheck, God has called us to get to work second second Thessalonians 3:10 says this for even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat Hebrews chapter four verse nine through eleven says this there remaineth therefore a rest. To the people of God. For he that has entered into that rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Leisure is for those who have labored first. There's nothing wrong with turning on a football game. The Super Bowl's tonight. Since my team's not in it, and since most likely your team's not in it, don't put leisure ahead of the Lord. Even if your team was in it or my team was in it, don't put leisure ahead of the Lord. We labor. We labor. Do you know, sir, that when you get up in the morning and you go to work, you are serving the Lord? You know why? Because you are bringing home the finances to pay for your family. Do you know, ma'am, when you get up in the middle of the night and clean up that throw up that your your six year old uh vomit in the middle of the night and you get up and clean that up, you are doing the work of the Lord? You are loving the family God has given you. When, sir, you love your wife, when, ma'am, you reverence your husband, you are doing the work of the Lord. When you show up to choir practice and you you, you prepare to sing, when you work the nursery, uh, when you work on a bus route, when you usher, when you play the piano, uh, those that can play. When you do this work, you are laboring for the Lord and God only gives true rest to those who choose to labor. Labor versus leisure. We live in a country that is drunk on leisure and entertainment. Drunk on leisure and entertainment. What is your clothing this morning? Are you wearing a robe that is pure? Is your labor pure? There are two choices on the shelf. Loving God or loving self. Letter D, selfishness versus selflessness. Selfishness versus selflessness. Selfishness. When we choose to love our flesh, we are choosing the old, ratty garment of the flesh. We are choosing, we are choosing, instead of putting others ahead of ourselves, God ahead of ourselves, we are putting ourselves first. Selfishness. There is nothing that destroys relationships faster than selfishness. I could uh, rattle off a whole bunch of Bible verses this morning about selfishness. Can we all just be honest this morning? We all know this, right? Selfishness is a sin, it's wrong. Some of you in here fought on the way in with your spouse on the way to church this morning. Can I just say this? If you had a fight with your spouse on the way to church this morning, it's because you're selfish. There's selfishness in your marriage. What you need to do is humble your heart and apologize. Well, he never says he's sorry. If, sir, if that's the case, you need to learn to say you're sorry. You need to own up where you're wrong and not just say it with your mouth, show it with your actions. Some of you here are good at saying you're sorry, but your spouse isn't so good at saying I forgive you. You know why? You're being selfish. Well, I'm going to make him pay. You know what selfishness does? You listening this morning? Selfishness attempts to change someone's behavior by seeking to control them. Well, I don't like the way that um, that uh, my wife looked at me or the way my wife talked to me. So I'm going to be rude to her for three straight days to make her feel the pain uh, of the way she looked at me or talked to me. Well, I don't like the way my boss is acting, so I'll show him or I'll show her by my level of production. I'll do enough to skate by so they can't write me up, but I'm not showing up 15 minutes before. I'm clocking in at the last second, and I'm clocking out the first second I can get off, and I'm not doing one extra thing by initiative. They're going to treat me that way. I'll show them. That's selfishness. That's seeking to control someone. Can I tell you what else it is? It's juvenile. It's juvenile. It's juvenile for me to try to control your behavior by me being passive aggressive toward you. Don't do that. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not being a passive-aggressive because I'm trying to change your behavior. I'm just really, really upset. Then you get on your knees and you focus on the cross and you realize how much God loved you and how much He went out of His way and took the initiative to save you even when you weren't worth it. And then you turn around and you give that love to others. Selfishness. It's time that we take off the robe of selfishness, and we replace it with the robe of selflessness. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. This will be the last verse. I'm almost done. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Mrs. King was the pastor's wife at the churches I served in in Maryland. Two of the churches I served in in Maryland. Mrs. King is a very simple, simple simple-spoken person. Um, she's not going to sit down with you and give you uh, uh, parse Bible verses and give you deep psychological analysis over your struggle, but Mrs. King gave some of the best marital advice I've ever heard given. She looked at a wife, a woman who was struggling, and and by her account, she's done this with many women, and she said to them, she she said to the woman, she said, if you want to fix your marriage, just stop being selfish. And start being selfless. If you can create a culture in your home where you're seeing how much you two can do for each other, and if you can outdo the other one and have a competition of selflessness, I promise you, your home will immediately pick up. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing, let nothing be done through strife. That's selfishness. Vainglory, that's elevating you above others. Selfishness. But rather, but in lowliness of mind, Selflessness. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Boy, this is the esteem we're to have. Not self-esteem, but other esteem. Where we esteem others, we prefer others ahead of ourselves. If I could just give one piece of relational advice this morning, it would be this. Prefer each other. Build up each other. Esteem each other. Pick up after each other. Provide for each other's needs. All of this really is the same advice. Be selfless. When we love selflessly, we love the Father because that's how He loves us. Do you understand that selflessness is the gospel? God looked down on us. And he saw how broken and sinful we were. Do you understand this morning that your sin and my sin is a deep offense to God? The lies that you've told in your life... The lustful, uh, uh the lustful moment you've had, whether that's covetousness or some other version of lust, sexual lust or whatever it would be, that lust is an offense to God. He, He rejects it. He hates it. And as long as that sin lays on your record, He pushes you away. He wants nothing to do with you. And if you die in that sin, God cannot let that sin into heaven. Little children have no problem understanding that the dirty shirt cannot go in a clean shirt drawer, but People, uh, adults, have a hard time understanding why their dirty, sinful hearts cannot be permitted in a clean and perfect heaven. Can I tell you right now that if I were to die as a sinner and I were to go to heaven with a sin nature, heaven wouldn't be perfect anymore. Someone says, Well, I'm a good person. God should let me in because I'm a good person. My friend, you might be a good person by man's standards, but you have sin on your record, and God hates that sin. He loathes that sin. He despises that sin. You say, Well, then what's the answer? God had to break, uh God had to break the the, the problem between us. God had to break the tension by sending Jesus to come down and die on the cross. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died to be the substitute for your punishment. The wages of sin is death. That word death there implies an eternal death, an eternity in hell. Jesus died in my place. He died in your place. I hope you're listening closely this morning. I believe there's a couple of you here that have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've yet to become a Christian. I hope you're listening. To the rest of you this morning, I hope you'll sit up and listen as well, so I can drive home a, a greater point here in a moment. Jesus died... Because He loves you. You see, God in heaven, He looked down at us and He had two choices. He could have made the selfish choice and sent us all to hell. And by the way, He would have been right in doing it. Or He could make the selfless choice and die for us. God looked over at Jesus and said, I have to send them all to hell unless you'll go to earth and die for them. And Jesus hung on an old rugged cross God took the selfless act and gave up his son so that you and I could have our sins forgiven. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, it really is this simple. You must understand in your heart that you are a sinner and that your sin is vile to a holy and perfect God. He hates your sin, but he loves you and he wants to separate the sin from you. The only way for that to happen is for you to humble your heart and by faith ask him to save you. If you've not yet done that, will you do that today? Will you allow his selflessness to save your soul? To the Christian this morning, I want to ask you a question. That person who does not deserve your love, are you willing to give it to him anyway? Does God love you? Are you willing to evaluate How impure your love is? Because all of us have some impurities in our love. Are you willing to evaluate that and say, Lord, do I have even a smidgen of covetousness in my heart? Lord, take it away. Lord, am I too concerned about what other people think about me to a level that it's hindering my relationships? Lord, take that away. Am I struggling this morning with loving leisure more than I ought to? Am I drunk on entertainment even a little? Lord, take that away and instead give me contentment. Help me to live for heaven's approval. Help me to labor in your work. Help me to be where I am doing what I'm called to do. Help me to do it with all my heart. Lord, help me to make Make the choice of loving the Father and rejecting the flesh. And you'll see that as your love is purified, these strained relationships will most likely slowly get better. And you know what? If they don't because the other person is that broken, God will give you the peace to cope. He'll give you the peace that when they're ready to fix it, you'll be ready to fix it. Let's have our heads bowed nice clothes this morning. If you're here today and you've not yet called on the name of Jesus to save you... It really is very simple. It really, really is. Boy, you need to see your need. And you need to understand that if you die in your sin, God will send you to hell. Not because he hates you. He hates your sin. He loves you so much, he sent Jesus to die for your sin. So those could be erased off your record, expunged from your your list, so that He could grant you access to heaven. But He's not going to make you receive Him. You must choose to do that on your own. Not one person will be in heaven because they were good. The Bible says that in our flesh is no good thing. Whether or not you have ever fornicated, you have the capacity to do so within your flesh. Whether or not you have committed murder, you have the capacity to do so within your flesh. God wants to save you from that flesh. He wants to wash away your sin. Don't say no to Jesus. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He stands at the right hand of the Father, rather sits at the right hand of the Father. And He wants to wash away your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've not yet done that, can I help you to do that? Can I help you to call on the name of the Lord? Will you ask Him to take away your sin? Right there where you're sitting, just pray a simple prayer. Just ask Him to take away your sin. Ask Him to give you that gift. Just say this right in your seat, under your breath. Just say, if you have not yet said this prayer or something like it, just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know my sin is wrong. I know I deserve to go to hell for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. Come into my heart and save my soul. Please give me the gift of eternal life. Thank you for saving me.